And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a democratic party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class, and I think that what I represent, and, and perhaps you know Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party, and I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist, retired professor of sociology, and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling a hitchhiker's guide to the Democratic Party. So the socialist organization in the United States that has historically thought about these things, engaged in these questions in a way that tried to recognize the reality of American politics and the reality of electoral politics is the Democratic Socialists of America. And DSA, which has exploded in size in recent years uh, as the Bernie Sanders campaign's impact is felt in American politics, they've been wrestling with what was their historical perspective on American politics, which was a realignment strategy, as we've discussed, which was one that that saw socialists as being part of a broader coalitional effort to move the Democratic Party in a social democratic direction. It sounds like from talking to our friend David Duhalde, who was an employee uh, and, and leader in DSA and then also in Our Revolution, the group that came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign, that there'd been sort of simmering debate and discontent about the role of socialists in the Democratic Party or the role of socialists in politics in the organization for a while. Uh, and David does a really good job of taking us through that history here. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm ex very excited to be here talking to you, an old friend, and meeting uh, Dick for the first time, which is uh, an honor. So this podcast is very specifically about progressive and left strategy around the Democratic Party. And part of that really for us is about demystifying the party itself and helping progressives and socialists and frankly liberals get real power within it and use the Democratic Party to make change. And you've been involved in the leadership of two very, you know, key organizations that have both historically and very recently approached this question. You were the youth section organizer and a longtime activist, rank and file activist in the Democratic Socialists of America. And then more recently, a political director, I believe, for our revolution. Yeah, and I would actually, I think more importantly for this, I was the deputy director of the Democratic Socialists of America before becoming the political director of our revolution. I was a key part of DSA's like electoral rebirth <laughs> at that. I, well, that let's just jump right in. That's the first thing that we'd really love to hear about is 
the explosion in membership of DSA, uh, what kind of changes in DSA's perspective and activity in electoral politics came, you know, around the time of the the, the big boom? DSA is famous for for people who are you know sophisticated politically of being a, t- a tie to a realignment strategy um, that will define later on, but. That had kind of already gone to the wayside years before uh, the boom. So DSA, as I when I became staff, had already begun, you know, largely not focused on internal Democratic Party work, and essentially viewed itself as, you know, trying to elect good progressives. It didn't necessarily feel the need to endorse everyone who every president who is running on the democratic ticket which you know which is kind of a big deal that dsa didn't endorse joe biden but dsa didn't endorse barack obama in his second term nor had in, nor did endorse uh, hillary clinton in 2016. so there are already some things that are kind of in play leading up to the, the explosion of members but what what is key you know going into this when i joined rejoined staff as the deputy director in 2016 was you already saw how Bernie Sanders really changed the dynamics of running as an open democratic socialist. So the the anecdote I always give is, you know, DSA went from having our money returned, uh, which is the example when I was the youth section organizer, as Duraka pointed out, um, when I was staffed then, DSA formed a political, federal political action committee to raise money around Bernie Sanders, but it also gave a donation to now current Connecticut Governor uh, Ned Lamont, um, when he was running for Senate against Joe Lieberman, and Ned Lamont sent the money right. back after the New York Post uh, wrote, an, wrote an unfair article, <laughs> or actually very accurate, but unfair article uh, that I'm sure the Lieberman campaign uh, planted. Um, to the point, so we went from having our money returned to people asking for our endorsement. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of totally off, caught off guard because we had just been giving out the endorsement to whom we felt like it and didn't really have to create a process. So what happened at first, um, and then I think the explosion of membership, you know, comes into this is we were, when I was staff, especially I got assigned to dealing with these national endorsement questions, DSA was more openly willing to endorse non-Democrats, although it had already done that already um, historically in, in, in San Francisco, near where you guys are from, had endorsed Greens when there were um, chance for non-majority party, um, and also just really emphasizing that we wanted people to be democratic socialists get the endorsement, though that was partly done, have a, li- a way to limit actually who was requesting endorsements. It was, it was, so it was a political question, but it was also a pragmatic question. A capacity but question. Really, uh, a capacity question, yeah. But what really changed ultimately was the volunteer capacity. You know, when we supported Bernie Sanders in 2006 for his Senate run, which was a really impressive work given the size of DSA at the time, which is probably four or 5,000 people. You know, we did numerous house parties. We raised $60,000 from for the pack. But that was really just people kind of getting together to do parties. There wasn't any phone banking. There was no one going to Vermont to knock on doors. You know, that's completely different now where you had this entry of new people, largely young, I mean, statistics show it's probably like 80% under 30, if not higher, um, who were looking for something to do. And DSA effectively became democratic socialists with a small D, small S, 
democratic clubs with a big D, you know, and very much were acting as, you know, political forces in their communities that you would typically find in like a reform club, which, but given the volunteer capacity was so strong, even if the national endorsement only meant a graphic, you know, and maybe a nice webinar, people really did want the DSA endorsement because you could count on such volunteer capacity. And I think that is like a substantial way to look at the change. It was that key volunteer capacity that's really made DSA a powerhouse in certain communities and cities, especially compared to, I think, which we'll probably go into the other kind of liberal left, social democratic, Bernie crack forces that just, that also have their own successes. But I think DSA really does take the cake in, turn, in terms of like being able to really deliver as a single organization in a down ballot way, not necessarily in a federal way, but we can get into that as well. So that's interesting. So what you're pointing out is that not only was there a political shift, a, a shift in the analysis of the leadership of DSA about electoral politics that predated the Bernie presidential run. And I want to talk about that. But also that the key to successes that DSA's had since then has been in because they've created a, an activist base that can deliver electoral resources, knocks on doors, some money, um, and using that to put better people in power, better people in office, most of whom are Democrats. Was Is that a fair description of at least the what the program has looked like on the local level? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think the one caveat I would add to that is DSA sometimes works in coalition, sometimes doesn't, which I think is the broader, bigger break, you know, whereas the DSA that I knew was always looking for coalitions, not really seeking to be the only force. And I think in my home, st my home state that I've returned to New York, you know, DSA played a real role in electing Julia Salazar to the state Senate um, in 2018, getting out a pro real estate Democrat. And it played less of a role compared to the rest of the liberal left in getting rid of the independent democratic conference, uh, which were the state senators who were caucusing with the Republicans to keep the majority to stop progressive reforms. So DSA in its recent um, 2020 state Senate elections sometimes teamed up with groups like the Working Families Party, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. When the end, it's, you know, the numbers spoke for itself and DSA can say it elected five, you know, state senators or, or state legislators because some are assemblies, some are senators. Great. So one more follow up and then I'm going to turn it over to Dick for a couple questions. But just to give folks a little bit of a historical context, when you describe this idea that started to take hold when you were on staff and, and just before the just couple of years before the Bernie Sanders campaign for president, you're saying there was a shift away from something known as the realignment strategy. And the idea of of DSA, say, not endorsing the Democratic nominee for president, whether that's Hillary Clinton or um, or before that Barack Obama for reelection, that was a shift away from something that DSA was known for. I mean, can you spell that out? What what was it a shift away from and why was that noteworthy? Um, and I ask because a lot of people when uh, when DSA, you know, uh, sort of pre predetermined their lack of endorsement of Joe Biden um, during the primary, a lot of people were like, well, but it's a democratic socialist organization. 
Of course it wouldn't endorse a presidential candidate that wasn't a democratic socialist. And here's folks like Dick and I, old DSAers, who are like, that's the most inaccurate statement about DSA that I could think of historically. But there was something shifted. Do you want to describe that for our listeners, sort of politically or ideologically? To me, the realignment strategy has several prongs. So the idea is that literally you want to shift the Democratic Party and to make it into a social democratic party, which I think is something that a lot of critics of it don't fully get because they think that DSA thinks or thought that the Democrats were going to become a socialist party. That was never really the goal as far as I understood it. That means you would actually have to engage in serious intra-party work, uh, such as, and we can go into that, but essentially running for committees, shipping the platform, like making sure party rules are written correctly, and really shifting the policy and who is and how the party orients itself towards then the last third part is like, you know, I would say mass institutions such as the labor movement, you know, women's rights movement, organizations of color, especially black led organizations um, and how and how you can build, you know, a constituency that could really advance a social democratic agenda. Um, and I think it's always important to remember, you know, in history is that D at DSOC, which was like the first organization that, you know, pushed this before it merged with the New American Movement. It was the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee merges the New American Movement, but in 82 to form DSA, but DSOC was the original incubator of the realignment strategy as, as was known, you know, didn't endorse Jimmy Carter in 1980 after supporting um, Ted Kennedy as, as his primary challenger um, <laughs> that year. I didn't remember that. Yeah, and I think that that's um, important to remember because that's somewhat analogous to Clinton uh, Sanders 2016. Not totally, for, but but somewhat. And I think that there was an overcorrection, somewhat, and that's that's my editorializing, but I, an understandable one, in all fairness, that then DSA, you know, by '84 endorses um, Walter Mondale over the more progressive Jesse Jackson, um, and then definitely supports him in his race for presidency. And then by 88, you know, endorses um, Jesse Jackson in the primary, but also ultimately supports Dukakis and then stays supporting Democratic presidential nominees for some time. DSA still historically focused on coalition work and building those kind of mass organizations, but not necessarily to shape the Democratic Party. And then especially DSA members just didn't, I think, for, very reason, for various reasons, primarily because probably because they felt it was an effective use of their time as a small organization, stopped, in my opinion, doing the kind of intra-party work that was necessary, but um, to really effectively create realignment. Let me let me just underline that and, and, and verify that for you, that in my time in DSA as a staff person and a really active person in the 90s, there was the analysis you described, like, hey, somebody should go in and change the Democratic Party. But DSA was not doing it. There was no actual inside program, um, which often meant like I, I was just always reminded of the old subgenius quote that we would get all of the guilt and none of the sex. So it meant going into left spaces and, pe and being blamed for everything that any Democrat had done horrible because we would vote for Democrats. But we weren't actually in there fighting back, changing, having any real program. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And I think the one thing I'd also add in terms of like the minutia history that I think is really valuable is DSA in the 90s, you know, at one point in DC before I became the DC staffer, 
you know, in about five years ago, 20 years before me, they had tried to build a DC presence, working, helping work with Ron Dellums, uh, who was a DSA member in Congress, and mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, you know, to create the Congressional Progressive Caucus, working with the Institute for Policy Studies. Mm -hmm. But these were things that, it's the classic where DSA becomes the victim of its own success. Um, in that they create these institutions that eventually like don't need them right. or even want them around. It's not like this Congressional Progressive Caucus needed DSA, you know, to thrive. And I think the, the other classic example of this is which I brought up numerous to people who critique the realignment strategy is that you know D DSOC successfully used the what what then were the midterm conventions <laughs> to push progressive reforms in the party and then the democratic leadership got rid of these midterm conventions so i that those are like things that i think are such critical parts of history that you can't judge dsa and realignment without really acknowledging that right if it if it hadn't been working there wouldn't have been so so many attacks on it <laughs> you know right. um to make it underwhelming and then Overall, though, I think that what realignment couldn't account for, which I think is very important and actually does influence also why so many people are attracted to socialism today, is that neoliberalism really was a dominant uh, trend after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, it, and what happened in the Democratic Party of the United States is similarly happened to social democratic and socialist parties around Europe, and it, there was a, a move towards accepting neoliberalism, and that's not even, there's no, and there's nothing DSA could have done, I think, even under more favorable conditions to, to stop that. My memories go back to uh, Mike Harrington as one of the main architects of this realignment strategy, and I always felt that he didn't really have a, as you were alluding to, a concrete plan for actually changing the Democratic Party. So Mike Harrington's idea of realignment, I think, uh, might be traced back to the 60s and before. The idea was to change the Democratic Party by driving uh, the Dixiecrats out, by creating a party that was more ideologically coherent around the New Deal uh, and its legacy. And I think he believed that the labor movement, the actual trade union leadership, would take a national lead in remaking the party, which I don't think ever came to fruition, although he probably felt that because there were at least on a state level in, say, New York or Michigan or California, Wisconsin, um, state levels uh, activity of that really was very powerful in changing the party in those particular states. I'm talking about in the post-World War II period, but even in, in New York before that. But uh, I always felt Mike didn't have any idea really how to implement realignment in the actual conditions of the of the 70s and 80s. The the Kennedy case that you mentioned, my wife Mickey was recruited to be a Kennedy delegate by her DSA commissar, as we used to call him, <laughs> whose name was Harold Meyerson. Harold Meyerson. Um, and, and there was a, a social a DSA caucus uh, at the Democratic <laughs> uh, Convention of 1980, which to me highlighted the, the problem at the time, which was there were about 60 delegates out of thousands who were DSA members. And they met and it was a, a cover, you know, the, there was a good deal of press coverage, but the press was entirely European. There wasn't a single American media covering this caucus. Um, and, and so uh, I always, I, I didn't quite understand where Mike 
thought things would go uh, because he was so dependent on the AFL-CIO or the CIO type leaders, as well as other social movement uh, personalities and leaders in thinking that was where the coalition could come from. I'm just giving a little more historical filler. But now I think we, uh, we're going to try in this podcast to put some more very contemporary meaning around the idea of realignment, meaning a struggle within the party to make it a people's party, a democratic small d party, uh, as, you, as you said before, a party that uh, really can be, in European terms, seen as more social democratic. Um, can that happen? Uh, not without a lot of work. Uh, that's what we think. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think is going on now that uh, it, it, not only DSA, but Our Revolution, which you've been a uh, key staff member of, um, is is there that kind of strategic thinking beyond the idea of primarying um, these established uh, uh, more corporate oriented Democrats, which itself is a, that is a strategy, but it can't be the only the only path, right? Is that right? What you can look at for our revolution, it really was a continuation of the Bernie Sanders. 2016 campaign. We can get into other elements of this, but I think the way Larry Cohen, its its founding chair, who's still active, used to describe its strategy roughly as like a triangle with uh, groups in the middle. You know, the base of its you know the and the members. And one side is electing candidates. Another side is social movement, legislative work such as Medicare for all, campaign finance reform immigrants' rights, and the bottom, um, not for any particular order, but is, is party reform work. Um, so it's seen, so party reform work was seen distinct, but still as part of a general strategy of advancing legislation um, and electing candidates. So, which, and so in certain ways, I felt, you know, especially by 2017, 2018, that our revolution um, in many ways was picking up the mantle that DSA was leaving behind. And I think, so, it's, so even though I said DSA wasn't as interested in realignment, DSA didn't totally askew um, party work uh, by, actually, and by party, I'm really going to be referring to the Democratic Party in this case, unless I specify differently, um, you know, until like 2018. Because when Keith Ellison uh, ran for chair of the Democratic National Committee, you know, DSA, the leadership of DSA unanimously endorsed him to do that position, you know, and, and put out a statement. There was, I even had like a Facebook profile picture of like, I'm a Democratic Socialist for Keith Ellison, you know, so there was actual genuine right. enthusiasm for for this from the DSA membership because it was part but of- But then the what, he, he lost and then it was like, we just walk away? But I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's the reason why. So I think Keith loses. Um, and DSA kind of starts, and that's why I want to focus on our revolution, but I think DSA at this point also starts realizing that like the, it's bread and butter, you know, where it is really getting people elected. With our revolution picking up this mantle and doing what I, what you know, was described as Dem enter, because there was the Dem exit for all these people saying they're going to leave the Democratic Party if Bernie doesn't 
But there were actually lots of people, probably more people, who were like, wow, I want to get involved in the Democratic Party now that Bernie's engaged me. And there was a genuine sense of getting people excited about doing Democratic Party reform work. And I think where Duraka, when I was spoke to him a year ago, he said something that I never forgot. And I think it's really important to also distinguish the what were the motivators. Um, whereas if you looked at the Democracy for America folks uh, who came out of the Howard Dean campaign, when they discussed party reform work, they're like, we, the Democratic Party is good. We want to make it even better. Whereas the Our Revolution folks looked at the Democratic Party is bad. <laughs> it's stopping our nominee. Therefore, we want to change it. And DSA kind of had the sim. The majority of DSA by that point was like the Democratic Party is bad, so we don't want we don't care what happens to it. So then you have this unorganized organized effort, and I'm using that term very specifically, where there was so much energy coming from the Bernie Kratz, and our revolution, in my opinion, just never staffed it adequately. Um, ended up folks, so there was never a full time staffer outside of I think sometime in 2016 dedicated to just knowing what was happening with these different party reform efforts. And my staff time as political director was largely dedicated on this to the Union Reform Commission coming out of the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Which won what? And that project won what at the National I think like it won a couple of things ostensibly, but I think but what, but what I think the key thing that's to remember, I think, which is I think more important for this discussion is the fact that you and I know the answer, but I bet you most people who are active don't know, is because it was so inside baseball. And that's not, ultimately, that's not what's going to move grassroots activists. So, I mean, where Duraka, you're to push back on you a little bit, you're like, well, DSA moves away. But it's also like, peop, I think even if you were a DSA member who was not, who was like interested in this work, it's it, your eyes are going to glaze over if I start talking to you about. About, about superdelegate? I, I, I'm going to push back. Because, because actually, well, my pushback is that actually a lot of these seemingly arcane things became very time consuming and almost uh, elements of obsession in the Bernie world. And so what's frustrating is that when there was real progress made on it um, and folks like Cohen and others that are, you know, were Bernie lieutenants, you know, deserve a tremendous, you know, applause for getting rid of superdelegates. That, that, that's a big deal. And and yet there was such bad communication about and mobilization about party reform. Uh, and I think this goes back to the 2016 campaign and, and convention as well. Um, that like, I, I just, I don't think that it's a dichotomy between the most minute parts of the bylaws and a giant thing like transforming the way that Democrats nominate the presidential nominee, you know, that disempowers the party elites. That, that's an achievement that I, I was like, isn't that proof of progress? I mean, can you see how from my perspective, it's like, how did we go the ironies of going from my day as a democratic socialist in the Democratic Party, as Dick described, where there's like 60 people at the 1980 convention for, for, you know, that are there uh, on a quixotic campaign to nominate Ted Kennedy to 2016, there's 40% of the convention are people who voted for a Jewish democratic socialist. How the hell are we not taking advantage of that within the party and still debating this stuff, you know, four years later? That's, how are we here? But I think what it speaks to two things. So one is, 
I think that gains were made from the Union Reform Commission. I just don't think that they were pitched to a way that actually got people excited. And some of the stuff was Fair. really important Fair. about transparency, what you're saying about like you have this moment. That's what I was getting at was that there wasn't actually the resources dedicated to building and supporting people who wanted to do this. So people would run for office, have no idea about, but I mean, we more talk about the people running for office, uh, you know, for dog catcher to senator, but there are lots of people wanting to run for committees and had no idea what they were doing. Party committees. Parties committees, you know, party leadership and, you know, kind of felt lost and that was very fair. And, you know, and it's like, you can't, and, you know, we're, all from the tradition of Marx here, you know, we're materialists. And like, if people aren't actually organizing that, that's not, there's not going to be a dialect of materialism. There's going to be like, just people go in and then become part of the thing or they get bored and they leave. And I think that was, you know, a huge issue. And and I think what I will say is, you know, prepping to talk to you guys, I was like, oh, let me see what our revolution's up to in party reform. And I went to the issues, it's off. They don't even talk about it now in their list of issues. Um, so I went to their blog, and they kind of mentioned you know, making the party more progressive. But I think now I see like the our revolution doesn't even do after wow. spending all that time and energy, you know, working on getting chairs elected. You know, I don't know how much it cares, and I think part of that stems from you know I think there was some demobilization, but more demoralization because at the convention was you know had had to be virtual for obviously for the pan- COVID and pandemic reasons, and you couldn't get the kind of energy. Of getting the Bernie delegates together, you know, right. and that that is really important. That was really important for 2016 of like building energy between DSA, our revolution, and all these other Bernie delegate networks. It, you just can't get that doing it virtually. It's just not the same feeling. Here's the, this is the point I would love to get across to people, and because it, it inspires me at times. Here is a party that at its base is very reflective of the social movements of our era. Uh, in terms of the people who are uh, active in the party or who support the party uh, and and candidates within the party. But that social movement, small d democratic base doesn't have, isn't empowered in shaping the behavior of the party in power. Um, And so maybe in the next period, if we happen to have more power nationally as a party, uh, that kind of uh, thinking will be able to be articulated better. And I always come back to things like the fact that here in California, we have we have a supermajority of Democrats in the legislature, Democratic governor, many, many uh, people in office who articulate a reasonably or quite progressive perspective. And yet uh, the legislature is constantly adopting very diluted uh, uh, measures to help people even in deep crisis. Um, and that's because of the power of the corporate lobbies uh, to a very great extent, but not that's not the only factor, but it's one of the key ones. So that's where I think Dirac and I are kind of pushing toward toward a, you know a, a vision of the future if, if people want, can work within the Democratic Party, what what's their aim and what's the what can guide them? It may revolve around the very question of how does the party relate to corporate power and and it's always been a question on the side uh, uh, and when Clinton was president uh, the party reversed course and decided alliance with the corporate elite was 
where it's at. Uh, I'm simplifying, but not too much. I mean, I think there's two different streams to look at what you just asked. So I think one is the party itself. And so that's like not only the state committees I keep harping on, the state parties or the Democratic National Committee, but also the uh, um, extra party organization. So that's, you know, at the at the grass at the grass tops, that's like the Democratic Governors Association, the Democratic Congressional Committee, these like million dollar organizations um, that are dedicated to, you know, supporting candidates, you know, incumbents, primaries down to, you know, the machine, whether it's ideological or not, whether it's the DSA electoral working group or just a patronage, Tammany Hall. Um, and I think that's very key because what I argue is that there's too much discussion of the party, you know, at its most like unsophisticated level at pretending it's a unitary organization, which I think the listeners here on YouTube would know it's not, it's a collect, it's a patchwork of different organizations but also that's critical too because you can shape you know by building sometimes alternatives you know or working within those you know advancing something that's more responsive absolutely so thanks a lot david duhalde thanks dick flax thanks doraka you'll be able to hear all of this on our patreon that's patreon.com slash T-S-M-H. All right. Thanks, everyone.